0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Once upon a time in the English countryside, Sandy McKinnon stepped into a bright yellow dinghy. He was farewelling the eccentric English boarding school where he had spent six years as a teacher and had no plans beyond sailing down the river to nearby Gloucester to visit a friend. But when Sandy got to Gloucester, he realised he wasn't ready to step back onto dry land. So he kept going, and going, through locks and canals, and then across the English Channel, all the way along Europe's river systems to Romania, where he finally left his beloved boat and returned to his life as a teacher. And you may have heard Sandy recount this unlikely and quite marvellous voyage to Richard on Conversations nearly 10 years ago now. Well, it turns out that it wasn't the end for Sandy's adventures by dinghy. Over the years, Sandy often wondered what had ever happened to his original little yellow dinghy, which he had named Jack the Crow after a corvid friend he'd made at the boarding school. Could the boat possibly still be somewhere in the marshes of the Danube, it turns out there was another Jack Crow waiting to be taken on its maiden voyage, beginning right where the first one ended. And so in April this year, Sandy set off again, this time with the aim of sailing across the Black Sea, across the Aegean, the Ionian and the Adriatic Seas and reaching the most magical port of all, Venice things did not quite go to plan. Hi, Sandy. Welcome back to Conversations.
1: Hello, Sarah. It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: Tell me where exactly you'd left your boat, Jack de Crow, back in 1998. Yes. Well, I'd left
1: it at the little river port of Sulina on the Black Sea. It's in the Danube Delta, a tiny little fishing village, which you can't get to except by, um, by boat, no, no road access. And I left it there with the harbour master. Basically, I just walked away and uh, expected the boat just to sit and rot away into the marshes. But I'd had my year or more of travelling and uh, felt it was time to go and pick up my life again.
0: How often did you think of Jack the Crow in the years since? Well, you know, I I then wrote a book
1: about it. And, of course, that that then brought back beautiful memories of the whole voyage. And then I've had such such a lovely reaction from people over the years, armchair dinghy sailors or, or real real life dinghy sailors and so I've often thought about it, but then it became most prominent in my mind when about oh about ten years ago, I think I went to Venice, I actually went with two of my students, lo- lovely fellows, and I was standing there on the Edge of the lagoon at the Piazza San Marco, looking out across that exquisitely beautiful uh, cityscape. And I said to these two boys, I said, you know, wouldn't it be lovely just to see this red sail come sailing across the lagoon in this late afternoon light and moor up uh, amongst the jostling gondolas here? Wouldn't that be brilliant? (laughs) And in fact, I said, you know, Nick, and they were both called Nick, Nick and Nick, um, I said, just across there is Greece and just down there is Corfu and just around the corner is Athens and, and then I think just up a bit is Istanbul and then just... A, and so on. And, and I had absolutely no clear grasp of geography because um, I was totally missing out Croatia, Montenegro, <laughs> Albania. I mean, Greece was not just across there. It was a 1,000 kilometres <laughs> down that way. Anyway, so so that's been niggling away in the back of my mind, the idea that... If I could find the original Jack de Crow, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? And I, I thought, oh, it'll be a three-week, a three-week jaunt. <laughs> well, it, well, it wasn't, Sarah. It wasn't. Well, <laughs> I should have bought an atlas. The, really.
0: <laughs> well, atlases and daydreams, I don't know, sometimes they're firm friends, sometimes they're enemies. So you had yes. this, this idea in your mind and it was centred around the original Jack de Crow. What did you discover about, about your boat last year?
1: Well, the most astonishing thing, I had a, a Romanian friend, a colleague of mine at the school I work, and he was going back to Romania, and he he loved the book Jack the Crow, and I said, look, Aussie, you're going back to Romania. I don't suppose you could swing past the delta and just check to see if my boat's still there, because if it is, that would be good, wouldn't it? And, and Aussie, a very lovely, generous fellow, said, oh, that little boat, I love this little boat, little Jack the Crow, of course I'll go look for it. But then a few months went by, and last October he sent me a text message saying, oh, "I'm so sorry, Sandy is no longer there. No one has ever heard of this little bots. It's goodbye for good." And at that point, I went, "Ah, oh, well, it was a it was a pretty daft idea." And I can now put it to rest with good conscience. I've tried; it's not happening.
0: But that wasn't the end, Sandy. What happened? Well, no,
1: because. By the most extraordinary coincidence, literally two hours after I'd got that text from Ozzy and said goodbye to the dream, I got an email or a message of Facebook or something from a complete stranger in England who said, Dear Sir, are you the Sandy McKinnon who wrote Jack the Crow? I think you possibly are. I have a favour to ask. I have just purchased a bright yellow Mirrodingey, identical to your boat, and I'm wondering... Can I call it Jack De Crow? <laughs> and,
0: do you have naming rights, Sandy, of all <laughs> <mirror> dinghies? <laughs>
1: well, I, I, th- yes, I, I think probably I do now, in in my um, capacity as a mirror dinghy sailor oh. extraordinaire. Ha uh-huh. um, Anyway, I, I had a few whiskies at that stage, and I it was quite late at night. And I thought, well, this is bizarre. Having had a few whiskies, I quickly tapped out a message saying. Dear sir, funny you should ask. <laughs> so I'm very flattered, very honoured that you should ask. And uh, here's an idea. You call it Jack the Crow, but I come and borrow it, or buy it, or rent it, or steal it, or <laughs> beg for it. I go off and do this sort of little jaunt I've had in mind, and then I give it back to you at the end, and it'll have a real adventure under its keel and have the right to be the proud bearer of the name Jack De Crow, and it can live out its honourable <laughs> retirement on the Thames. What do you think? Any- anyway, I sent that off, and about two hours later, it sobered up sufficiently to send another message to this man saying, dear Mr McCann, please ignore that last email. I am so sorry. It's absolutely outrageous. You know, you call the boat whatever you like without any expectation that a complete stranger is coming, coming <clears throat> along and say, I'll have that, thank you. And, look, it's ridiculous. You might never get it back. It's not a particularly safe journey. I'd have to rig it in all sorts of ways you won't like. And as for how I'll get it to the Black Sea, who, you know, that's a logistical nightmare, and went to bed and uh, woke up the next morning to a a text from this man going, I think that's a fantastic idea. (laughs) Absolutely. She's yours for the asking. Let's agree that the price shall be the price of a European beer for... (laughs) for the hire. And tell you what, as for getting to the Black Sea, I'll drive you there.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so, so I, I went, oh, right. I don't think there's any backing out of this now. No.
0: I... So what, you then had to fly off to, to England and meet this stranger who had a mirror dinghy.
1: Well, exactly. Well, first of all, I had to go to my boss uh, at at Timber Top where I work and say, could I have a year off? And so, bless him, I got a year off, flew off to England in February, met up with this guy in March. Sarah, I I was, by this stage, I was thinking, this man could be an absolute lunatic. (laughs) I might turn up at the address that he gave me and it turns out to be an asylum, you know, the Nightingale Ward in in Broadmoor, and he might be clutching a little ship in a bottle, going, "Ah, you see, I've got your little Jackdaw Crow here. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now, now we just have to get you into the bottle."
0: <laughs> you know,
1: I did I did worry that the man I was meeting might not be completely sane.
0: And what? Who met you? Was that warranted? That concern.
1: No, he turned out to be just the loveliest fellow, Northern Irish Irishman, and and what was most of a relief, not that he wasn't a madman, but well, a lot of a lot of boating people, in fact, every boating person I know, is uber competent, uber skillful and knowledgeable, and a bit, bit of a pain in the neck, really. <laughs> um, and I'm not, and I thought that within five minutes this man would have sussed me out as being the complete fraud that I am, and would change his mind, but he wasn't he was cheerfully as cheerfully incompetent as I am. We took the boat for a sail on the Thames, and between us we broke the mast um, <laughs> by tangling it in the overhead trees, and we both sort of looked at each other with horror and sort of laughed at each other, and thank goodness he wasn't one of those um very knowledgeable, competent guys who <laughs> I would have goodness. felt bad about. Thank goodness. Thank feel, goodness.
0: Make us all feel inadequate. So how did you get this Jacques de Crow Mark II from the Thames over to Romania, to the Danube?
1: Well, Steve, very kindly, he took a week off work. We put it on the roof of his car <laughs> and just drove for four days solidly right across Europe at, at a at a great lick and finally got it to Sulina, the last part, by putting it on a ferry. And we went for a sail on the Black Sea. And and at that point, we both put a hole right through the decking um, <laughs> as well, which wasn't a good start. And then Steve <laughs> hopped back in the car and drove all the way back to England. And I thought, right, I've got to get it from here round to Venice. And by that stage, I had looked at a map and thought, it's not going to be three weeks. Um <laughs> It's about 4,000 kilometres of open sea, and that's when the adventures began.
0: What were you bringing with you on this voyage?
1: Well, very, very little. I took my original little backpack that I've had since I was 16, and which was on the original voyage, uh, embroidered with the the emblem of Jack the Crow with a ring in its mouth. I, I always take some magic tricks with me. They're magic
0: very... tricks? Why? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, when you don't speak a language and you wash up somewhere and you want to get people's attention or or thank people for the fact that they've just given you a free meal or helped you mend the boat, and you don't have the language to do it, quite often I'd pull out my magic tricks and do a little mini (sighs) mini magic show. And so they're very, yeah, very, very useful and entertaining. Children along the way, and just. Amusing myself, really. <laughs> so.
0: so you were beginning on the Black Sea. What, what does the Black Sea look like, Sandy? I mean, is it, does it deserve that name? What's the colour?
1: Do you know, I, I'd always assumed it was just a name, but uh, when I was later able to compare the Black Sea with the Aegean and the Ionian and the Adriatic, there is a, a definite darkness to the colour. It's a, it's a really deep malachite green so uh, under a cloudy sky, it really does look much, much, much darker. Uh, the other seas have a really blue, crystalline quality to them. But every, every, every single person along the Black Sea coast, when they saw the size of my boat, which is only 11 foot open, wooden dinghy, would always say... You, you you cannot sail this on the Black Sea. You, you, you don't call it the Black Sea for nothing, you know. It's a very, very, very dangerous sea, oh, big waves, big storms. And they were sort of right. <laughs> uh...
0: well, how was your first day sailing? Tell me about day one.
1: Well, Sarah, there were two day ones because the real day one, the day I actually set off, the very day Steve had left, I was eight hours on the boat and ended up just two miles from Sulina (laughs) because I was actually on it rather than on the sea I was going along little reedy channels in the delta thinking well that'll be good I'll see all the beautiful wildfowl and so on but what I had not taken into account were there were bridges so I would have to keep taking the mast down and then scraping my way under a low bridge putting the mast up again which Took an hour and a half. There were mm. so many things attached to the top of the mast festoons and stays and halyards, uh, and uh, incredibly frustrating. And after about six hours of freezing, taking the thing up, down, losing bits overboard, I ended up between a dead cow and a pile of dog poo about the size of the Taj Mahal. <laughs> And and it's not a. I'm sorry to say, it's not a pretty landscape that close to the town. It's broken concrete and barbed wire, and so. On. And and I thought I, I'm going to give up. I just I I can see the, the Sulina, the church of Sulina, a mile away across the fields. I'm just going to stump back there, book into a hotel. Find that harbour master and ask. Do you want another That's <laughs> What <laughs> I love
0: just... about you as a heroic venturer, Sandy, because day one I'm giving up. I've had it. <laughs> yes, yes, <I> know. <laughs> Some fortitude. <laughs> oh,
1: but then do you know I did go back. I stumped back to the hotel in a state of hypothermia. But I did see. Uh, I love birds, and I saw a hoopoe. And a, a hoopoe is a very, very beautiful bird that lives in those parts of the world. It's, it's got a black and white sticky-up crest and lovely salmon-coloured wings. And I always take birds as a bit of an omen. If I see a favourite bird, I always think, oh, well, that's telling me something. That's telling me, carry on, old chap. <laughs> and uh, and I saw a hoopoe. In fact, I stumped past it and said, I've now got hoopothermia as well as <laughs> hypothermia, making little puns to myself to try and cheer myself up. They don't cheer anybody else up, but they delight me enormously. Anyway, the next morning I got up, I thought, well, I'll go back to the dinghy see if I can sort it out. And I found three fishermen right nearby, gypsy-looking fishermen. And I thought, well, they'll have robbed the, robbed the damn thing, and that'll be my perfect excuse. And as it turned out, they were just the kindest, loveliest people in the world. They'd already found the hole in the deck that Steve and I'd punched through... And we're mending it with some epoxy resin. <laughs> and, and then they told me very firmly, they said, I don't think you're quite ready. Uh, all, all this in very broken, pigeon English, pigeon Romanian. Uh, you need to come back to our fishing shack for three days. We will get everything sorted out and then you can set off. So... So that was, the, that was the real day one, <laughs> but it's not the day one that sort well, of I count.
0: After yep. you'd been ministered to by these fishermen, what was the second day one like? Was that a, a different experience, I hope?
1: It was, it was, and it was suddenly it was glorious and it was, I'm off and this is what I'd been dreaming about all those years. Again, I, I chose to do the first day, going through all the channels of the Danube Delta and my three fishermen friends had told me exactly which channels had no bridges and it was like a maze. It was sort of going through between giant reed beds towering 10, 12, 15 feet above my head across pools with huge big water lilies in them and then the bird life suddenly started coming in, the pelicans and the swans and the, and the storks, um, those giant pterodactyl-sized stalks, and and, and I was rowing, rowing and rowing and rowing and even enjoying that, and then suddenly found myself on a channel and the wind directly behind me putting up the sails and that magical, magical moment where you stow the oars, the wind catches in the sails and you're rippling along between the reed beds and with the wildfowl sort of arrowing off in every direction... And going, ah, yes, this is Jack DeCrow again. There we go. <laughs> I'm off.
0: How long until um, those warnings that the Black Sea is truly a dangerous sea? How long did it take for you to get a experience of what was being meant by that?
1: Well, uh, about an hour into <laughs> into <laughs> the the my first taste of salt water. Uh, so, so look the the very next day actually was a brilliant day. But I went 68 kilometres in one huge long run, which rather set me up badly for the rest of the trip because I thought, well, that'll be normal and I'll be in Venice in about two weeks. <laughs> I never made 68 kilometres again. That was that was the record. But then a few weeks later I got into very serious trouble and I capsized off a cape in Bulgaria. I was very close to the cape and the problem was that... I got the boat upright again and I just couldn't haul myself back into the boat. I had lots of wet weather gear on and I was waterlogged and I was about 40 minutes simply trying to haul myself into the boat again and the problem was the wind was blowing me straight onto the Cape and these really jagged rocks, I mean, knife-like rocks with the surf crashing on them and I was... Probably about 20 metres, I think, from those rocks before some superhuman effort had me f- flopping into the boat like a like a seal or a, a walrus. And the ropes were so tangled, everything just had knitted together in a, in a tangle that I couldn't operate the sail. So I just grabbed the end of the boom with one hand and acted as the rope myself and jolly well got sailing away. And it was only when I was about two miles out to sea that I then was able to fix everything, disentangle everything and get everything ship shape and continue sailing. But it, that was a bit close. Yeah, that had me thinking. I know before I was saying, oh, I don't like competent people, you know, they're such a pain in the neck. But <laughs> actually, I think the reason why many boaties are quite competent is because <laughs> they need to be to stay alive, you know.
0: What was the state of mind of, of Sandy McKinnon at this point into <laughs> the second voyage of Jack de Crow?
1: Well, Sarah, the the bizarre thing is that I enjoyed it most when it was being disastrous. I I take after my my dear mother, who taught me to sail, and she was one of those sailors who, if you went out sailing and you didn't capsize, it wasn't a proper (laughs) sail. And if she capsized, even before she had resurfaced, she would be trying to tell the story, (laughs) you know, turn the whole thing into a story. (laughs) And I'm a little a little the same that I don't cope well with boredom. The harder bits of the journey weren't the the alarming ones. There was just the, the dull rowing. But in these bits where I was nearly being washed straight onto rocks or you know, things breaking, I just found myself going, Oh crikey, you know, this is this is brilliant.
0: Well, from Bulgaria, you sailed past Turkey and along the coastline of Greece. How yes. how much of the glories of these ancient civilizations are you aware of from the water?
1: Well, there are two things to say about that. One one is that I've always loved the the, the Greek myths and the classical history. So I knew about places like Delphi. I knew about the Acropolis. Uh, I knew especially about Troy. I've always loved the Odysseus voyage. It's probably one of my favourite of the legends. And so I was very conscious of landing at Troy, which is in Turkey, and walking across the floodplains to the ruins of Troy, which were just so beautiful. It was springtime, all the poppies out. And the, and the, the, the ruins are very um, unmanicured or uncurated. They really are just like sort of ruins amongst the olive groves. And I stood there underneath one of the towers of Troy, and said to myself, I'm now going to, like Odysseus stood here, I'm now going to, like Odysseus, get to his island home of Ithaca on the other side of Greece. Now, he took 10 years, but I'm going to do it by sail, by oar, no motor, nothing modern. Let's see if I can do that. (laughs) And then it was one of my proudest, proudest moments, stepping ashore onto the shingle of a little cove on Ithaca about six seven weeks later, thinking, good God, I I've done it. I've I've actually done the sea voyage by wind and ore power alone. That was that was a bit of a thrilling moment.
0: You were delighted by the ruins of the ancient world, but what did present day Greek officials make of you and your Eridory? Oh.
1: <laughs> yes, one of the one of the huge difficulties is that the, the the whole cruising world around the Med and the Black Sea have very, very, very strict rules. Every boat has to have ship's papers, has to have documentation, and they have these this extraordinary bureaucracy.
0: I can and hear the disdain in your voice as you say this. Uh, yeah.
1: Well <laughs> absolutely. How
0: dare they <laughs>
1: How dare they? But also, it it was, again, quite comic, because I would land in a new country, and this happened right from the moment, Romania, then Bulgaria, Turkey, and then especially in Greece. For example, I I landed in Greece at the first port, Alexandropolis, and was immediately told by the border authorities and the harbour police, where are your ship's papers? And I would say, well... Could you just have a look at this boat? And they'd look at us and go, "Well, it doesn't matter. You must have ship's papers." And I said, "Well, I'm sorry. I simply don't have ship's papers."
0: What were in you fact, saying? While- that Jack de Crow is not serious enough a boat to warrant officialdom.
1: Absolutely, it's a boat out of a out of a children's book, you know. <laughs> and and in fact, one of one of the Bulgarian officials, after insisting and insisting on papers, had finally actually grinned, shrugged his shoulders, and said, "I know. It's like a." It's like having papers for a bicycle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he came to agree that we're actually perhaps we don't need to follow the rules here. But in Greece, the lady who was in charge, who took her job extremely seriously and uh, had a type of praying mantis intensity about her, bless her, she said to me very clearly, she said, well, you have two choices here. The first option, she said, is that you immediately leave here and sail back to Turkey. <laughs> and then get back to England or wherever you're going without going through Greek waters. Well, that would have taken me, you know, through Libya. Uh, so so I said, well, what's the other option? Uh, she said, well, then you leave the boat here and you hop on a plane and fly home and never come back. And I thought, right, OK, so they're, they're really the only two options? And it took about three hours for this lady to finally come around and classify the boat as a kayak and decide that I didn't need ship's papers after all. (laughs) Dreadful. Ah, dreadful.
0: Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. more conversations anytime on the ABC listen app. So Sandy, once you'd made it past the barrier of Greek officialdom, what was the weather like? It must have been approaching summer.
1: Well it was and in fact some of the hardest bits weren't the the windy stormy days of spring. Greece was going through a terrible, terrible heat wave. I mean, you may remember there were all the fires, um, bushfires, wildfires on Corfu and a lot of those islands, and I was right in the midst of that. So some of the days were absolutely windless still and 40-degree heat, and I'd find myself rowing for eight, nine hours a day. uh, That sounds like some
0: kind of penal servitude, Sandy.
1: It did feel like it. Whatever sins I have committed in my life, I have now <laughs> thoroughly atoned for. I am, I am now whiter than the lamb. You know, I am squeaky clean. Well, how much right? of a
0: mental game is, is rowing in, in circumstances like that? I mean, how, how do you keep your morale up of hours of rowing under a blazing hot sun, no wind to put your sail up?
1: I suppose the, the key is that I simply had no choice. I could sit there and sulk about it or be grumpy, but the longer I sat there just thinking, this is ridiculous, this is unfair, it just simply meant that I was sitting there. (laughs) And I I just realised if you actually want to get anywhere, if you want to get to land, if you want to get to a place where you can sleep the night, Sandy, you just have to row. So so in, in one sense there was no choice. The other part of me was I was actually really relishing... Getting fit. I mean, all my lovely colleagues up at the school I work—they're all built like Greek gods—and <laughs> you know, I had the physique of a of a walrus. <laughs> uh, and now I'm quite proud to say I have the physique of a rather toned-down walrus. Um, well, ten hours, hours that, of
0: rowing a day will do that for a man, won't it? It,
1: <laughs> it will. I lost I lost thirteen kilograms, so I, I sort of enjoyed that aspect mm. of it. I also—I've been blessed with a really, really, really good memory for poetry, Shakespeare, songs, hymns, tunes. So one way I would get through a long, 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 long day is just start simply with my repertoire of Gilbert and Sullivan songs or poetry or Shakespeare speeches or Edward Lear poems and so on. And I found that that was an absolute lifesaver for me.
0: There was a date you wanted to get to Dubrovnik by. What was motivating that?
1: Ah yes, yeah. so I I have two lovely daughters, 11-year-old twin daughters who live in England with their mum, and they had said, "Look, we'd love to come out and join you at some stage they were on their uh, school holidays." And we decided that Dubrovnik in Croatia would be a great spot for them to come out and visit. We set a date a fairly long way in the future, a, a very achievable date, or so I thought. But then I was really plagued by unfortunate conditions. There was, a, there was a contrary wind, contrary currents, days and days of absolute calm where I would row and row and row, but because of the current I would end up just a kilometre from where I'd started And somebody later said, never, ever mix sailing with deadlines. (laughs) Um, Deadlines actually become dangerous Mm -hmm. for sailors because you end up pushing yourself or taking risks or setting out in weather you shouldn't, and they were dead right. Having that deadline and feeling that I was unable to reach it and having to push myself much harder than I wanted very nearly finished me off and very nearly made me think, ah, oh, I can't get to Venice. It's still another 1,000 kilometres away. But I did get to Dubrovnik. I met my gorgeous Ava and Lily and their mum Lou. We had five beautiful days in Dubrovnik, which is an extraordinary city. I'd never been. It, it's a it's a completely preserved medieval walled city. I think they filmed Game of Thrones there. There's not a single modern aspect in the entire city, and that was just what I needed to restore my spirits, gather a bit of strength and give myself the renewed optimism that I could make it to Venice.
0: Well, between Dubrovnik and Venice, you had to sail the entire length of Croatia. What made that such a challenging part of the journey?
1: Well, the whole coast is scattered with thousands of islands, and they sort of peel away from the coast. And so if you're trying to actually follow the coast itself, which is always a safe thing to do because you're always near land, you actually find yourself uh, uh, not really going in the direction you want. You, you, you're ending up sort of heading too far east. And this chain of islands takes you further and further away from the main coast but also seems to become the natural thing to follow. But then, of course, you're, you're you're finding yourself having to cross the straits between islands, and sometimes that might be twenty kilometres of open sea sailing. But there was something actually really lovely about it as well. One of my favourite books as a child was um, Ursula K. Le Guin's um, The Earthsea <laughs> trilogy, um, The Wizard of Earthsea, and it's all set in a fantasy world which is basically just one vast archipelago. Where every island is different, and that island is the island of wizards, and this island is the island of dragons and this one the the etc and that that's just croatia it it was the most extraordinarily beautiful probably the most beautiful part of the whole trip was sailing along and the late afternoon sun and being able to see literally thirty different islands in every direction, some craggy and crowned with storm clouds, others purple, purply hazy against a gold background, um, others low and flat and green and grassy with sheep grazing. And I really, really felt like that character in The Wizard of Earthsea in his little boat <laughs> that had the magical, magical property of he could just say the spell and it would sail where he wanted to go. And there was, there was something truly enchanting and fairy tale about that part of the trip more than any other.
0: You received some beautiful human welcomes in Croatia as well. Tell me about Drago and his family. Who took you in one night?
1: Ah, oh, yes. Yeah. So on a little island uh, called murta it's the island of the dead, I found out later it, it meant. Uh, I was looking for an accommodation, wandered up to a house, leant over a fence to ask a man, look, you've got a sign there, accommodation, uh, are you open? He said, oh, no, 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 he's... he's, uh, he's too too much for you too much for you and i went well um, a bit desperate how much and he said well 40 euros <laughs> which was about a third the price of anywhere else i'd stayed and I said, "Well look, I'd, I would love that if, if you're happy.." He said, "Well, you have to wait. you have to wait. I'm cooking dinner for my, uh, dinner for my family. You'll sit there. You'll sit there, you have this beer. I make this beer myself. You'll try this beer. And uh, do you like lamb chops? I, I'm cooking them here on the barbecue. Um, I will fix the room later. You don't have to go yet. You'll just sit there. And this, uh, this man was called Drago. And for the next three days, he just adopted me as a member of the family. And it was rather touching that that night, the reason he was cooking a meal was he had three sons all in their 20s, but the middle son had very sadly uh, had about three months before had been diagnosed with a very, very serious leukemia and had been off in isolation in a hospital, uh, having treatment, having all the chemo, not allowed to see anybody because of fear of infection and that night he was coming home for the first time, so this was a really special family occasion of this man who was immensely proud of his three beautiful boys, beautiful sons. But I, as a as a complete walk in stranger, <laughs> was was immediately made part of this uh, this homecoming. And the next three days the weather was quite bad, so Durago insisted that I. I stay and he helped me with all sorts of things. But I got to know the three boys and and the lovely the lovely part of it was that on the third day before I left, N- Nicola, the, the boy with leukaemia, just got the results back and they were very, very good. They were hmm. very, very promising. In fact, Drago was kind enough to say that he almost felt that my... my you know, wandering stranger coming to the door and sharing in their hospitality was in some ways a good omen uh, for, for the recovery of his son. And I've only just remembered there was a, a hedgehog wandering around the garden at night and I, do, I loved it. I loved seeing it. I made a big fuss about it. And later I found out, because they stayed in, have stayed in touch on Facebook, they've named the hedgehog Sandy. So they, <laughs> <laughs> so they, they regularly talk to Sandy the hedgehog, which well, is rather sweet. I
0: like yeah. that you were there, Good Omen, the way that hoopoe bird was your Good Omen at the beginning yes, of your journey. Yes. You'd yeah. been sailing for nearly seven months, I think, when you finally made it to northern Italy. What time of yes. day did you sail into Venice?
1: Well, I'd been advised by uh, another contact. Uh, He said, don't come to Venice in the mid-afternoon. He said, get to the, the Lido, the island called the Lido, which is a great long island on the outer side of the lagoon. Get there the night before, stay somewhere, and then sail across really early in the morning because the traffic, the boat traffic, is very, very heavy and the police will be on the lookout and sometimes they don't like little sailing dinghies. Well, I don't think they've ever seen little sailing dinghies in Venice, not like mine. Um, anyway, so I took I took that advice and it was actually so beautiful because I got up before dawn and I started rowing in the dark across across the lagoon with the lights of Venice showing in the distance. There's a beautiful Kenneth Branagh film of Othello in which there's a lot of rowing in the dark. In Venice, that it was, it felt like that, and then and then the sun slowly coming up, and and the, the morning star Venus brighter than I've ever seen it, uh, hanging just like a, it looked as big as a chrysanthemum in the sky. It was so glorious, and rowing and rowing, and then as the sun came up, when I was about a kilometre away from the main Piazza San Marco, a breeze sprang up, so I was able to put the sails up and sail in the dawn light just as I'd envisaged it all those years ago and sail right up to where the gondolas are at the Piazza San Marco and step ashore to Venice. I mean, what (laughs) what better place could you possibly imagine to... End a journey of almost four thousand kilometres in, in an open boat.
0: How, how glorious Sandy. Where did you moor? Where did you moor Jack de Crow this time round next to some gondolas, or where did she end up?
1: Well, um this fellow who was my contact is an extraordinary man called Giacomo di Stefano, and he, years and years ago, he had read my Jack De Crow book, the first one, and had been inspired, he told me to build his own boat. He's a master craftsman and he'd built his own wooden boat and he had pretty well followed in my footsteps of the original voyage. He had sailed and rowed from London to Istanbul and the boat was so beautiful and so iconic it's ended up in a museum in Istanbul. Anyway, Giacomo had then got in touch with me, had found out I was doing this and said, well, I live in Venice. He he said, my sister has a palazzo on the Grand Canal. (laughs) so. So, I—that's I <laughs> much better than my boat. sister
0: has a bed sit a couple of hours out of town, isn't it? A piazza on the on the Grand Canal is an invitation you don't want to say no to.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, I could not believe my good fortune, and you know, if it hadn't been for Giacomo, I would have been lost because there is nowhere to moor in Venice. For a, for a boat just turning up. But I rode up the Grand Canal just shortly after I'd landed at the Piazza San Marco and nearly was collided, you know, collided with about every other boat going. But, but they were remarkably lovely. I got no dirty looks. In fact, I got an awful lot of slightly bemused but admiring looks from all the, 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 the owners of the Vaporettos and the gondolas and the police boats and the and so on. And then was met by Giacomo at the base of some marble steps that led straight into the huge great five hundred year old wooden doors yeah. of his sister's palazzo. And he had a bottle of um, prosecco there to drink at eight in the morning, <laughs> which is some hours before I usually start drinking. But it, it, I felt it was, I felt it was warranted on that occasion.
0: Oh, Sandy, what, what's the emotion like at that point? Is it relief or delirium? What, what do you remember feeling as you sipped that prosecco and toasted the second Jack de Crow? It, you'd
1: think it was going to be huge relief and delirium. To be honest, there was still... I was so preoccupied with just some of the more practical details, like, right, I've got to get this boat up out of the water. I've got to get it emptied. We've got to store it somewhere. I've got to... So I was, I was actually still very focused on the practical details. But then once all that was done and I could then reflect, it was... It was an extraordinary feeling of relief, but also pride. I mean, I, 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 I try not to be conceited about this, but actually I was quite, I was quite chuffed. I thought, <laughs> you, you made it, you idiot. You, and, <laughs> and you see, Sarah, what, what often struck me along the way was that this whole thing was a very ill-advised idea based purely on a fanciful daydream... Not, not researched, not, not, not looked into in any way, I, I, I made the mistake of thinking, well, just because I've daydreamed it, therefore it's possible. And, that, and that's, as, that's not a good basis for <laughs> doing anything. I mean, you know, I, I, I later, like, I love Dr Doolittle and there's, there's one where Dr Doolittle flies to the moon on a giant moth. It's almost as ridiculous as if I would thought, oh, well, that's a lovely idea. Let me do that and and then set about trying to find and tame a giant moth. this This particular idea of mine wasn't that much short of the implausibility and and unrealistic nature of flying to the moon on a giant talking moth. And yes, I did it. I, it it sort of somehow it it happened. It happened. Mm.
0: Well, maybe the best adventures come from daydreaming rather than too much planning. And then your new friend Yakmo helped you drive Jack DeCrow back to England. And so you'd taken this Miradingi on quite the maiden voyage. Do you know what Steve has planned for her? What what adventures might be next?
1: Well, actually he he's very keen. There's a a, a boat museum, a maritime museum down in Cornwall at a place called Falmouth, uh, that has a whole collection of boats that have done extraordinary things. You know, I think it's got one of the boats that Edmund Shackleton sailed across to Elephant Island in, and it's got various other boats. And Steve is very keen that dear little Jack DeCrow the Second should end up in that museum. <laughs> um, and so he's in negotiations with them. Until that happens, he will sail it up and down the Thames. I was rather rather pleased once I got the boat out of the water to uh, see that. Jack-de- Crow has barnacles growing all over its hull, which I think is a real badge of honor. you know, I don't think many Merdingghis end up with barnacles on the hull, so
0: that's rather good. <laughs> How do you compare the, the two voyages in your own mind, Sandy? Are they complements to one another? How do they stand side by side?
1: Both were superb in their own way. I now look at the original one and think, well, that was a doddle. <laughs> that was only on rivers never on big waves and and just tying up on a bank every night so the first one now seems like a type of idyllic <laughs> wind in the willowsy sort of adventure and something very oh, i don't know gentle arcadian pastoral uh, and delightful uh, and absolutely delightful this one feels much more like a really intrepid adventure. And there is, there is to me, something of the odyssey in this one.
0: How hard is it to readjust to everyday life after such an adventure? I mean, surely teaching in the classroom can't compare? Oh,
1: no, it's much better. I do happen to work in a school which is the best school I've ever taught in, and probably one of the best schools in the world, which has an extraordinary programme, Year 9s, for the whole year. It's residential, so all the students are there for the whole year. And while they're there, they have no mobile phones, no screens, no television. Any communication home is handwritten letters. They chop all their own firewood for hot water. We all do, staff as well, do three runs a week and build up to a 33 k run at the end of the year. We hike every week. It's in a bush setting and I cannot wait to get back
0: into it. Mm. So, Sandy, in your most recent book, Quaint Deeds, you reflect Mm. that um, being a teacher is being a kind of a wizard. How so? Well,
1: I'm not sure if it is for everybody. Um, That's my little quirk. But I've always loved the wizard figure in literature, you know, Merlin, Gandalf, Dumbledore and so on. And they've always been teacher figures, haven't they? They've always they've always had a mentor, you know, Merlin bringing up the boy Arthur and, and Gandalf and Bilbo and Frodo and so on. Just from a very early age, I have loved, absolutely loved that idea of being, to younger people, hopefully a figure of wisdom, but also of playfulness. There's always been something playful about the literary wizards and and a certain element of trying to bring a bit of enchantment into life. I think all the subjects I teach, you know, mathematics and English and poetry and art and drama and so on, have a real enchantment to them. And therefore, as a teacher presenting those things and showing young people the wonders of these things, which often isn't on the curriculum, there is something a bit wizardly about Mm. that and, and it's a role I have enjoy it and hopefully will enjoy for a few years to come.
0: Well, it's a role that you've taken on explicitly at various points in the boarding school that you were teaching at, where the first Jack de Crow was launched. You yes. you left as a, a kind of parting gift a quite extraordinary treasure hunt.
1: Yes, Sarah, I have always loved treasure hunts. Um, even, <laughs> even as a, as a five-year-old, I, I would irritate my family immensely by doing things like hiding daddy's keys putting them in the laundry basket and then leaving a dirty sock where the keys were as a clever clue to where Daddy might find his car keys. The only thing is, you know, Dad did not actually realise that he was being set at an intriguing treasure hunt. All he knew was that his damn keys had gone missing again and it was probably bloody Sandy who's hiding them. So, anyway, I I had an early love for treasure hunts but then have refined them. And so at Ellesmere, which was a very... Um, magical place, you know, tame crows and and gables and towers and stained glass windows and so on. I had made a a chalice, a jewelled silver chalice, which I, I sort of pretended was the Holy Grail. I buried it within a bike ride of the college, and I painted nine paintings, all of which contained all the clues to finding the buried chalice. The clues involved Mathematics and Shakespeare and tarot cards and the Psalms and um, uh, word puzzles and so on and so on. And um, it took four years to find. Four and it, years? Yes, yes, yes. It was designed so that it would actually... You couldn't just sit in a room looking at the paintings and then solve all the puzzles and then go straight to where the treasure was. Each new clue would insist that you get on a bike and say, ride to a monument on top of a hill. And only once you'd seen that inscription on that monument would the next bit of the, the treasure hunt make sense. You'd go, ah, OK, I apply those letters to here and now that gives me a new thing. So the people seeking for this treasure hunt had to go and into chapels at midnight and see where, you know, stained glass windows. They had to search through the Book of Psalms and through Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice. Uh, they had to go riding through the countryside to l- lonely hilltops and down tunnels. So it was meant to provide people with a an adventure straight out of something like Harry Potter or Narnia. I have actually... I've just done a similar one. Before I sailed away, I did an exactly the same idea at Timbertop where I have hidden a golden chalice this time... Um, Painted seven paintings. Told a little fairy story about a wombat and King <laughs> Charles, because Prince Charles went to Timbertop many, many years ago. And I'm right, I, Sarah. I'm glad I survived the trip, this voyage. But if I hadn't, what a way to go! <laughs> and what a legacy to leave. You know, the story of well, there's this mad teacher buried a treasure, set all these clues. Went and drowned off, off, you know, Ithaca somewhere, went to a watery grave with all the secrets, and now... Anybody who's going to find this buried treasure is going to have to jolly well do all these treasure hunt clues.
0: Sandy, I'm very glad that you returned safely and that there are more adventures and more treasure hunts ahead. And I kind of see you as ending your days like the kindly professor, you know, in the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, who believed Lucy when she'd said she'd been to Narnia because he'd been there himself <sighs> as a child.
1: That is probably the greatest compliment anybody's ever (laughs) given me. I am that person. I am that person. Yes.
0: Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations.
1: Oh, it has been an absolute delight.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konosky. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au conversations.